How scary is it being a parent? Scary, man. Scary to the point where it brings up emotion. What does it feel like if you know in that moment I could be traumatizing my kid? It's hard because I think sometimes I'm being my father. What and that, that's tough. What does that feel like in the moment? Welcome to the New Age Sage Podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. This is the first episode ever, so I would really appreciate it if you like, subscribe, and listen to the whole thing because I really think you'll enjoy it. Today's guest is Stefanos Stefandos. With over 20 years of direct experience in the personal transformation space, Stefanos understands peak human potential. He is a trained educator and relationship expert with a background in behavioral science. He is passionate about leading people closer to their highest potential and to each other. Stephanos' philosophy merges the best of Eastern and Western methodologies to promote spiritual balance and empower people in life and love. He helps people escape negative patterns and cultivate a positive sense of self. Stephanos has also co-founded both a world-class coaching and education institute and global men's empowerment movement and has been involved in multiple eight and nine-figure startups. Stephanos has worked with thousands of men and women from all walks of life, special forces soldiers, Olympic gold medalists, elite fighters, and everyday people have relied on him to restructure and reframe their relationships with themselves and their loved ones. You will love today's episode. Trust me. Thank you. Steph, how's it going? Man, I'm on I'm on cloud nine being in this space. It is so cool, bro. It's a very unique build, unique experience. Yeah. So I want to get right into it. Um, like I know you do. <laughs> toxic masculinity. What do you feel in your body when I say that? Uh, <laughs> I feel displacement and disgust, and I'll tell you why. Um, because I think conventionally how it's understood is through the lens of men are toxic or men are inherently toxic or men are inherently unhealthy. And that's just not true because I think in the dualistic world that we live in this 3d human world, toxic masculinity can exist, but it doesn't exist without toxic femininity Mm -hmm. and masculine feminine energetics. And there's different ways to say them, uh, to, uh, to speak to them that aren't maybe as charged or polarizing or confusing are simply energetics that reside within every human being. Can we move into unhealthy expression or unsustainable relational expression? Yes. Can it come from the masculine or the feminine? Yes. So when you say that, when I hear those terms, I'm also a little fed up with the narrative around men are bad, men are evil, men are shit. And I think we have to get away from that because that polarization actually brings us further apart, creates more distance, more isolation. And ultimately, it doesn't bring us together, which is what we all want. Yeah, I hear you. My, my problem with it is that in my experience, and I'm sure your experience, I had to, re- it's a Jordan Peterson concept, but I had to realize how I was dangerous. I had to realize my shadow, my capacity for danger to then be a man. I had to face the stuff that society told me to ignore. Yeah. Don't look at your uh, aggression. You know, don't look at your, your sexual shadow. So... Is that the path you recommend for healthy masculinity is to face what we deem as, as, as toxic, be with it. I think what society does is say, you know, masculinity is toxic. And in that, 
men then shame and repress those sides of themselves and then become shadow. And then they'll end up doing those things at a higher likelihood. Yeah, and they do them in secret. They do them in the shadow. They live in the shadow. That was my story. I lived in the shadow because <clears throat> I had an idea of what or what I thought society wanted me to be or how I should be buttoned up and, and look, and I wasn't living in my truth. And so to answer your question um, more directly, I think every human being needs to look at self in very whole ways. And that is inclusive of the stuff that's undesirable. That is inclusive of the stuff that is painful to look at, that is considered and deemed ugly, that is trauma-based or wounded, that carries shame, that carries undesirable elements of the human experience. And if we negate that, and if we don't look at that part of ourselves or those parts of ourselves, what tends to happen is we move through the world feeling broken and fractured. From that place, we then need to compensate for that feeling because the greater the pain, the greater the pleasure needs to be. And so we seek that in food, sex, pornography, um, achievement, uh, social status, the accumulation, accumulation of resources, um, obsession with the body, uh, um, hypersexuality. That's not healthy for anyone. And, and when we go down that path, we start to lose ourselves and we move further and further away from our truth because we're wearing more masks and we confuse others. Others don't trust us through their own nervous system interpretation, their neuroception of feeling us through the world. We then get that feedback unconsciously. We then start to create aversions towards others. We don't trust ourselves. And so now we've got, relationally speaking, we have a bunch of people, 7.8 billion, moving away from each other, not even knowing it. And when I said, just one more thing, when I said earlier around we all want intimacy, we all want connection and closeness, what I mean by that, and I want to expand on that a little bit, is it's a basic human need to be in relationship with other people and to be loved by other people and to give love, to give and receive love in equanimity, right? Whether we believe that or not, that is part of what drives us as a society. So I just wanted to clarify that point. Yeah, thanks for all that. What, what was the biggest shadow you didn't want to see in yourself? What took you the longest to see that moved the most in you? Um, I think there were a few. I think when I look back, um, I really bring it down to um, low self-worth. This false bravado that I put out into the world because I wasn't really confident in who I was. And I carried shame about my personhood. I just carried shame about me being me. Just that. And that shame, I just stuffed down and stuffed down and I didn't want to look at it. And yeah. I mean, to your point before where you said that the more you are in shame and pain, the more you seek pleasure, what was it that you were overcompensating with? Like what things were you Sex. seeking? Sex. Sex, food. Food was my first vice as a child. So in, in, a, in a growing up in a violent, volatile home with a lot of uncertainty um, and being in a very confused um, place within myself, food was something that was a refuge. Food and television. Um, being in nature as well with my grandparents, that, that felt very safe. Um, but food and television was a very, very easy escape. And to be honest, man, like if I have to be honest or I choose to be honest now, in times of extreme pressure, and the threshold for that has increased over the years, right? But in times of overwhelming pressure, I still go to food. I still emotionally eat. I still go to television to numb out. Not just watching anything, but 
really distracting myself from feeling that sense of overwhelming and life feels too much right now. It then as an adult moved to um, sex and the more variety, the more volume, the more, the more, the more, the more. What is it about sex that shame loves so much? <laughs> That's an interesting one. You see, we have an idea, I believe we have an idea around um, our sexuality and sexual intimacy that basically says, um, I will validate myself and I will seek worthiness through sex, through the act of sex. And in doing so, because of the intensity, the physical, the peak physical experience of sex, we mistake sex for deep, authentic intimacy, right? loving, intimate connection, where we are seen, we're held, we're loved, we're cared for, we're acknowledged, we're appreciated, we're respected. That can occur in the physical act of sex, absolutely. More often than not, though, people are so, we are so disconnected from our core, from who we truly are, that we can't access that. And so we think that this peak experience is actually giving us this beautiful, intimate connection that we're yearning for, which often comes back to or comes from or stems from unmet needs in childhood. Largely, I'm of the belief through our primary caregivers, our parents. So when those needs weren't met, those needs to be seen, those needs to be felt, to feel safe, to be approved or to be acknowledged for who we are without judgment, we transfer those needs into our intimate partners. And we mistake, I'll repeat this again, and I've said this is my third time, but this is a really important point, we'll mistake sex for that intimacy that we're actually craving, but it's not the case. We still feel empty after it. So what do we do? We chase and we pursue more of it. I think what you're referring to is, is Carl Jung has a theory called the anima. Are you familiar with it? Yes. Um, which to explain to the viewers, it's the traumatized relationship with a parent becoming basically your repressed form of loving. So if I had, well, I did have a, a distant mother who I always ran after and I had to shape shift and wear a mask, who can I be today to, love, to make my mom love me? That was what I thought every single day, right? So in, that, in the adult world, that becomes the uh, traumatized unconscious person I chase who has those tendencies, the, the trauma and the shadow in me, in me chases. So considering that's a reality, and also for men, for women, women too, in terms of their, their father, whatever it may be, if you all have some degree of that, what's the journey to become free of it? Yeah, it begins with self, right? And so what often happens is there, was a, there would have been a time in your life where you realized the familiarity of your behavior. Now, prior to that point, it was just who you were. You wore the mask, you did the thing, mm -hmm. you got the girls, you had the fun, you moved on, and you repeated, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Until you get to a point, and usually for most of us, not always, and it doesn't always have to be this way, and I think why it's this way is because the collective state of consciousness is at a point of, we'll call it immaturity, or not mature enough to learn beyond heartache, challenge, and despair we have to almost always hit rock bottom to elicit deep transformation within our lives, within our patterns of behaving, and within our being and relationships. So what you're saying is you kind of have to have that 
toxic girl guy destroy you in some way to realize, oh shit, I'm I'm basically repeating patterns. It often takes getting, getting smacked in the face by yeah. that situation. Yeah. That's that's one example. And you and what I was asking you, what I was about to ask you earlier was, you'll find that at some point in your life, you would have stopped and said, this is too much. This is too painful. What the fuck is happening here? And that curiosity, that inquiry starts to bring you down that rabbit hole. It starts to bring you into the depths of your shadow. You now start to become more confronted. Now, for a slew of reasons that are some unknown to us, you'll either meet those shadows, you'll traverse the depth within your own psyche that you've never gone to before, and you'll meet those shadows and you do one of two things. You'll either jump out really quick, which I did many times, mm -hmm. or you'll sit and you'll go deeper. And, and when we do that... And everyone has their threshold, but when we continue to do that, that's when we know, oh, now I'm changing that behavior. Or now at least I have a greater chance of changing that behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond uh, awareness, which is definitely the, the rabbit hole, as you said, it takes us to heal. Then I realize you're faced with the nervous system. And for me, it's like you can be aware of a pattern and catch it in yourself and say, and have that disillusion, being like, this is not what I want for myself anymore. But the nervous system lives outside of the out of the conscious, you know, thoughts you have. So what's the journey in healing that nervous system, right? So let's say, let's pin an example, right? You're dating someone new who's distant, isn't answering your texts, is being very distant, having the same patterns if you have an anxious, anxious attachment, all right? In your mind, you're like, I know this isn't what I want, but your nervous system is screaming. How do you go about that? Yeah. So the, in the example of an anxious attachment style, which is one way to read our nervous systems and understand our nervous systems, what can be, not always, but what can be really, really healthy for that individual, depending on which stage of their journey they are with um, their relationship to their attachment style, to their insecure attachment style, it could be beneficial for them to not be in relationship for a period of time, to really work on themselves and heal that part of themselves, either working with a coach, a therapist, in groups, you know, their own reading, their own frameworks, or their own learnings and so forth, you know, doing different workshops, et cetera, et cetera, right? But really learning to assert healthy boundaries, to build their own confidence and self-worth, whether that be through physical challenge or engaging in new novel things that require their attention, and they're very deliberate with it, you know, through their own meditation practices, through their own friendship groups, learning to say healthy no's and healthy yeses, learning to speak their truth in safe places, and, and being heard by non-judgmental, compassionate people to help build that muscle of, I'm going to stand in my power and ask for what I want, and not be validated by you. I'm not going to be told that I'm worthy because I'm doing something to make you happy and I'm prioritizing you, minimizing myself, maximizing your needs. Yeah. What, what I'm hearing there is also that you kind of have to build yourself up to a point where you can traverse and handle the trigger. Yes. Yeah. Big time. And that then you may enter relationship with greater confidence, but you, in doing so, you may also attract a healthier partner yeah. or a healthier dynamic. Yeah. What do you do if that, if you've done all that, but no matter what, because I think it'll always come back to some degree a little bit, how do you not get into that shame cycle of, I'm past this, I shouldn't be feeling this way, what's wrong with me, I thought I was healed, all the ayahuasca, what was it for, <laughs> you know, so what, what do you do, I'm sure, you know, even you as a master... What do you do in those moments to be, of yourself where you catch yourself in those in those cycles? Like, fuck, man, I should be past this. Yeah, yeah, and I have those moments sometimes too, for sure. 
I think what happens is I'll give you an example of, um, you know, I recently, uh, my wife had a child. Uh, we had a child. She gave birth to the child. <laughs> um, and she's about 10 months old. She's my light of lights and my little angel. And I just, I'm so, so I feel so blessed. And what I've noticed is that, for example, my relationship to freedom, to the concept of freedom and the application of freedom in my life. It is my biggest wound and my biggest value. And having a child and my whole world changing, my whole routine, or at least large aspects of my routine, my day, my week, my month changing to accommodate, um, A, because I want to be in her presence and, and nurture her and be her guide and, and, and mentor and steward and all those things, and B, because she's a little human being that just needs that support and needs that love. I have worked on my relationship to freedom in relationship and intimacy and other areas of my life, and I feel I have some level of mastery over that. And Have I mastered it? No, clearly not. I'm about to get into that. But some level of mastery. Having this child has brought up a heap of shit again, all all shadow stuff around my my um, my freedom, and I'm I'm noticing myself judging more and projecting more and being very precious of my time and being aggressive and hyper vigilant, and being abrasive and being frustrated because I feel constrained and constricted. It's not because I haven't worked on this wound; it's because new layers are emerging with new experiences. And so, to answer your question, one of the ways that I have met that is through leaning into my practices of breath, of pause, of stepping back, of slowing down, of smiling and being curious about this thing and not seeing it as a deficit, but seeing it as an, as an opportunity and allowing myself to fucking be emotional with it. If there's anger that comes up, to give myself permission without the shame, to have those internal dialogues and conversations with myself from a place of self-love as opposed to self-loathing. But that's taken years, man, to get to that point. Like yourself, I grew up with a great deal of self-hate and, and, and self-loathing because I witnessed that in my father and my mother, particularly my father. So I thought that negative self-talk is very normal, but it's not. Because if I spoke like that to you, you wouldn't be my friend. Yeah. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah. Being so aware of trauma and how trauma passes to children, how scary is it being a parent? Scary, man. Scary to the point where it brings up emotion. What does it feel like if you know in that moment I could be traumatizing my kid? It's hard because I think sometimes I'm being my father. What and that, that's tough. What does that feel like in the moment? Overwhelming. Like my whole system is flooded. Like I'm not adequate enough. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to fail this child. And all of that is somewhat irrational. Yet... Um, it's an opportunity again for me to really feel that shit and to also remind myself that I'm not my past and I needn't be an example of parenthood that was primary to me if that's not what I choose. And I can choose differently. I'm actually empowered enough to choose. If I'm not that little boy that was censored and muted and disabled and not empowered, I'm a grown adult. This is the reminder, right? I'm a grown adult that is empowered to choose. And the reality is, my presence is not hurting her. My presence is helping her. And I can choose how I want to show up every moment in that relationship. When you're in that moment of, oof, I could be doing something damaging, do you show her that emotion? Or do you do your, do your best to be stoic? What's your approach in that? Yeah. Um, I 
she sees me cry pretty much every day because I look at her, man, and I just can't, like, I have tears of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I, I show my emotion with her. Anything that's intense that would shock her nervous system, like being very angry, which doesn't really come very often at all. But let's just say Christine and I are having an argument. We, we One of us will very quickly say, hey, Athena's here. Let's not do this now. Mm-hmm. Let's do this later. Because if, if our tone's that, because we don't want to scare her. And at the same time, we want to show her that it's okay to raise your voice and repair from that and come back to equilibrium as well. So it's a bit of a balancing act. Um, and it depends on the moment. But she... Man, I look at her and she, I can feel the oxytocin moving through my body. Yeah. Like that brings to me tears of joy. Yeah. She a, witnesses that. Yeah, that's awesome. It, trauma in kids is such an in- interesting one because I don't know if you feel the same way, but for me, if I didn't have any of that trauma growing up, I wouldn't be good at what I do. I, I truly believe it was part of my, my karma, part of my, I kind of chose that experience to, to carry through what I do now. Do you feel similarly that that part of you needed that childhood to do what you do now? Yes, but the and not but the interesting thing is that, and I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for you. You can tell me if you relate to this. That X amount of years ago, I couldn't embrace that fully until I'd actually made whole and healed those parts and come to peace with all the players in that game, including myself and all the smaller versions of me as well. Yeah. And now I can look back and go, yes, wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. Because of the wisdom that it's given me, the embodied knowledge. But that's been a process and a path. Yeah, I hear you. For me, so a lot of my, my trauma was attached to my mom. And when she passed away, it kind of obviously was brutal in of itself. But when it happened, I kind of had to, was a forced forgiving of, of being like, just, just grateful of all, all the shit that happened and being like, um, kind of just transmuting into love. That that kind of mass acceptance and forced change into, I'm grateful for it all. I'm grateful for any second I had, even if it was tough and it affected me in these ways. I do hear you. Kind of that forced me to get to a point where it wasn't so sticky and uh, and uh, angry and victim-y, blame Once that charge was gone, I could really step into that. Fuck, man, I needed that that experience to to do exactly what I do. And, and following that that line of thinking. Your your kid will have to experience some kind of trauma then, you know, because it's inevitable. That's tough. I dropped her the other day, not from up here, just from about a foot, uh, yeah, foot high, not even. And she rolled, she hit her head and she was just crying. And so I dropped her, she fell, and I I just missed her. Like I helped her enough where she rolled and hit as as opposed to a direct hit, but I I felt responsible for that. And that's a trauma, you know, it's a trauma to her nervous. And I should probably forget it. She cried it out and she let it go and it was all great, but. Man, that was very difficult for me because I was, you know, felt responsible for that, that I just missed it. She, I thought she was going one way, she went the other. You know, like my parent friends, like, <laughs> that's going to happen a million times. It happened to me a thousand times. Yeah. They're going to hurt you. They're going to kick you in the nuts. They're going to do this. Gonna, yeah. That's life. How was how your relationship to the feminine change with the daughter? Oh, yeah. You know, my feminine really, my relationship, the, my relationship to the feminine really shifted with Christine in greater ways as well in that, in that dynamic and continues to do so, of course, in that intimacy, in that relationship. And then having a daughter, um, I would say just a deeper level of reverence and a, and a deeper level of awareness and curiosity, but particularly the curiosity piece. And so, yes, females and femininity is not mutually exclusive. Um, and 
um, there is a feminine, there's a, there's a feminine energetic that runs through all of us, of course, but through my daughter. And so relating to her in different ways, like actually getting curious about what her needs are, not only in every moment, but also long-term, not projecting that too far into the future, but just curiosity, man, is really what it's at. And so, and, and a deeper appreciation. So watching my wife give birth in the way that she did because of her karma around that and her circumstances, our circumstances, I have a very, very, a, a deeper reverence and respect than I thought I could have had. The level of strength and resilience and toughness and love that had to move through my wife to give birth to our child in the way that she did was unexplainable. I can't, it, it, I don't think very, just because of the circumstances, and I won't speak too much to them here, but very few women could do that. And the, when I saw her, uh, I, I was in shock. I mean, I'm shocked now. I can't even put my words together. Mm-hmm. That that there, watching my daughter come out of my wife and then to go onto her chest and to be alive and full of vitality or to be animated um, was very, very endearing to me. You're, you're knowing you. You're a man who who's, who thinks in symbols. You're very big in, in symbolism, as we all should be. What do you th- the symbolism of birth? Considering how powerful and unique of an experience it, it is, symbolically, how do you unpack it? Like, why is that the way we enter the world? What it's what in, in terms of like the symbolism in itself and the experience you've had? Maybe there's some clarity into you seeing it as why does this symbolize the entryway into into hum, into human form? Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? That that. For the most part, I think um, it's a no. Well, not always, and not for everyone. Um, not for everyone, but it, it can be a very tumultuous, challenging. It's it's sort of all over the spectrum, right? Um, the the birth process to give life it can be so challenging. And I, and I think about the symbolism of that, and I and I come back to I come back to this, right? I come back to this story. I want to share a story with you, and it's around um, effort. And it's around uh, exploration and willingness. And you've maybe heard me, you've maybe heard me say this, share this story before, but God was contemplating in all God's infinite wisdom, where shall God place, where shall I, if God was an I, where shall I place the greatest secrets of the cosmos? And as eons pass, or what are eons to us and nothingness to God, God says, alas, I shall place the secrets of the cosmos in stillness and silence because that is where humanity fears to go the most. And the effort required will not only enhance the journey but allow authenticity into the embracing of that secret, of that wisdom of the ages. And so I guess the parallel for me is that the effort required for that life to come through in this physically animated form, it allows us, and yes, this is the physiological aspect of bonding and so forth, but allows us to deeply, deeply appreciate that life and value it so much that we cannot help but be a steward of that life. Mm. So to me, that's the symbolism behind it. It's, it's very powerful. Going go to that point you said about the power of stillness, 
kind of feel like it's it's super important for men to cultivate that stillness. To some degree, I think it, it strengthens our power. You probably know more than me, but in this day-to-day age where we're so distracted, always running around places, how important is it for men especially to find time to be in that stillness, to get grounded, to feel their heart, to be present? Why is that so powerful for men that it's becoming a, a, a lack of skill nowadays? Firstly, I think it's extremely important, not only for oneself, uh, one's confidence, one's vitality and health, uh, but also to honor the expansiveness and the emptiness of the masculine. And in stillness and silence and in nature, we find that. I also think from an evolutionary perspective, we evolved in nature and we're disconnected now in nature because of the society's homes culture that we live in which I think separates us from being connected to something that is greater than us, but is also, but also is us. And particularly for men, stillness and silence is something that is, can be so cherished and so valued and really grants us an opportunity to learn more about who we are, to become more self-aware and ultimately, you know, more self-actualized, more self-realized, more enlightened, if you wish. And through that stillness and silence is where we can contemplate, where we can feel all the parts of ourselves, where we actually come face to face with the undesirable within us, with the shadow, with the ugly, with the painful, with the the parts that we've detached from, because we're slowing things down. So it's not just stillness and silence, it's slowing down. We live in a very busy world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what I notice in men or myself, as someone who is masculine, is this constant need for self-discovery always pushing myself to find out where I'm not free at, a, at an obsessive level. And whereas I notice more so, and not all women, but some, most is just a more so acceptance of, of wherever they are and just being present and with more feeling that what I see is this, this male chase for, as you mentioned before, freedom. Like it's this male chase for becoming free. Why is that so imperative for the masculine? It's a really good question. I don't know why, but what I do know is that the masculine within us, actually, I think I have an idea why. I'll, I'll have a guess. Let's, let's, let's explore it. But the, <clears throat> the prerogative of the masculine is to primarily feel expansiveness and freedom. And the prerogative of the feminine is to feel connection and intimacy. And I think it's a blending and emerging and a connecting, a bridge of the two worlds, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we look at the feminine being very earthly and grounded into this human experience and into intimacy and connection, and to all that entails emotionally, physiologically, spiritually, and psychologically, we see that aspect of the human condition expressing itself in fullness. And the other part is us connecting to the ethereal, to the unknown, to the immaterial, to the divine, to the spiritual, to the ever-expansiveness of, of creation, right? To freedom, to infinite expression. And I think we need both in this world to, to evolve. I think we need both in this, in this world to evolve and grow. Yeah, what... I think what I notice now that you and I will agree on is that men are becoming very weak. I do and agree. It's uh, it's tough to say because it c- because why? What is that weakness? Like when is it okay for a man to be weak, and how do they do that correctly? Yeah, well, it depends how you define weakness, right? So for me, when I'm thinking about men are becoming more weak, firstly, I just start with what's really tangible in their physical bodies, 
but you train, you exercise, you go to the gym, you you push yourself physically, you challenge yourself physically. That's a very important thing. I do that the same as well. Did. Yeah, I did nearly 500 burpees this morning, um, just for the sake of it. <laughs> I'd rather die, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was watching something the other night, not like the other night, last night, and he said, this guy goes, I do a thousand burpees every day. And I'm like, no, you don't. I've done a thousand burpees before, but I feel like doing burpees tomorrow, so I'll do it. So just did that only 500, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a little slow, actually. But anyway, that's never, never, don't let me get on a tangent. So physically, let's start there. Men have evolved. I'm a big fan of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you are as well. And we've, we've, you know, we've discussed that a great deal and how that impacts. We can't tease out and separate identity and psychosocial constructs from our biology. They, they can be separated per se, but they can't be, again, like exclusive. It doesn't work that way. I don't believe it does anyway. We're holistic beings and our biology and physicality is part of that. And we've also evolved a great deal over the years, years meaning millions of years. And so when we go back to our evolutionary roots, we see that men were very active and they define part of their value to their tribe, to their society, to their clan, to their group of people through their physical adeptedness, through their ability to be strong and confident in their, bo- in their bodies, to extend the perimeter and protect the perimeter and, and hunt and provide and do all those things. And you had to be very physically adept in a very harsh environment. That not only was very useful to the survival and the thriving of that community, but it was also in attraction dynamics and polarity dynamics, it's very attractive to the feminine and very attractive to females because it symbolizes, <clears throat> symbols again, confidence, discipline, uh, longevity, um, health, vitality, um, the ability to protect. All of these things and more become very attractive in attraction di- dynamics. And so I see men not being... Only I see men in modernity not only being weak in their physical, weaker in their physical constitution, not prioritizing that, but being weak in their mindset, yeah. being less resilient, being less tough. This is an interesting thing. I'll share something with you. So, as boys and girls, and in the womb, what we will see is that we have boys have elevated levels of testosterone and cortisol, um, more so than females. Right? As a result of that, topic, but it's true. <laughs> It's true. I know it's true. I'm just saying it's crazy yeah, people I know. dispute it. I know. I know. Um, apparently, it's true. This compromises our immune system more, makes us less robust, less resilient, less tough, makes us less, quote-unquote, intellectual and, and intelligent. And in, in, intelligence is a very multi-layered, multifaceted conversation. Makes us less emotionally fit, per se. So we all that means is that as boys, we just need to be nurtured in very specific, particular ways right, to allow that to come through. And as we grow older, of course, we become more physically strong. We become more, uh, we find a balance or an equilibrium, a homeostasis within ourselves, and we can apply um, that to our lives. The issue is, though, that if we're raised in a way that stunts everything we're experiencing, for example, oh, big boys don't cry, or you just get up if you hurt yourself, and there's no real emotional outlet, like an appropriate emotional Mm -hmm. outlet for that boy to express and to tap into that and also to move energy physically through his body, he can develop unhealthy, maladaptive patterns of behaving and coping. And so when we look at that weakness, we're not connected to our bodies anymore. Like, again, we live in these concrete jungles. Men aren't, people, we're just less and less connected to nature. We're less and less connected to our bodies. Where there's so many microtoxins in our environment where the food that we eat 
and so yeah. convenient. We live in this world of convenience, yeah. hyper convenience. I'm all for convenience, man, but hyper convenience. We have to challenge ourselves. Challenge is the domain of the masculine. When we challenge ourselves, we learn more about who we are. We expand our window of tolerance. We are able to deal with trauma and difficulty with greater adeptness. We feel more connected to ourselves. We're able to be more present for our partners. Like the list goes on and on. And on. Yeah. Well, where my thinking, I agree with all that. Where my thinking goes is a, is a polarity to both extremes. Where on one end, I see hyper-feminine men to the degree, where nowadays where it's this like trigger warning bullshit, where it's, you know, where men w won't be able to handle someone with a different opinion. Like a left guy won't be able to handle a right guy, right guy won't be able to handle a left guy. That's what I see is men not being able to handle uh, intense emotions based on disagreement. When I see that, it's like, how are you going to be able to handle a kid when your wife's upset? When you know money, all these things that man has to be in control of. If you can't handle a, a trigger based on your political beliefs, which is everyone now, how the fuck are you gonna do this shit? That's one extreme. Other extreme to me is uh, a hyper masculinity developed in anger with the feminine. Mm. That they're so angry at the feminine due to parental abandonment or rejection growing up that the woman becomes the enemy. That because you know fuck bitches, I'm gonna be you know benching. 300 pounds every day, you know, I'm going to be... Yeah, that's a weakness. You may be physically strong, but you're compensating. Yeah, yeah. So I, I see those extremes nowadays. Either it's either that hyper-feminine men or a hyper-masculine men who shames the external feminine, but also shames the feminine themselves. Big time. Won't let them be weak, won't let themselves cry, can't relax. So what's that... How does the healthy masculine, a real man, what's the level of femininity they can be inside themselves to also be that, that dude? It's very personal to that individual. Yeah. And ultimately, it comes from your own shadow work, your own exploration yeah. of self, right? And then you'll find, you'll find your way through that. And, and an, an example of that latter, latter example that you gave is Magtow or men's movement as well, where there's this hatred towards women, this hatred, this, oh, we don't need women. Well, it's, you may not, but there's also a part of you that is biologically driven in this really biologically driven sex and pro the, the biological need to procreate, whether you whether you choose to or not, it's still a part of you that needs a woman to do that. Like to perpetuate the species of humanity, there's no other way at this point, yeah. but we need each other. So it's okay to need each other. So, but I want to go back to your original question around this. And I think what it is is, is again, I'm going to go back to that hitting rock bottom and we almost have to oscillate between extremes. We have to go one extreme, and we have to go to the other extreme. We may have to go to another extreme again, but it's less than the one, the original one. And we just do this, and then we come into homeostasis, or as the Buddhists say, the middle path. Yeah. Right. And so I think again, for for most of us, we have to experience those extremes. But if we experience those extremes without critical reflection, without inner reflection, and the the, the ancients used to do, say this. Well, not all of them, but so many ancient cultures would emphasize the power and the importance of critical, deep critical reflection of self and of one's life on a daily basis. We don't create time for that. That, to me, also leads to weakness, weakness of the mind, weakness of understanding self, of knowing oneself. We don't create space for that. We don't create space for the stillness and the silence. So to answer your question again is create more space for stillness and silence. Observe what's the come from behind your actions. Is the come from behind your actions because you hate women? 
So you're trying to build yourself up and make yourself better than what you think you are or what you need to be. So you can show women that you don't need them, but really what you're doing is you're showing your mum that you you are good and you're a good boy. And what's underneath the action? Yeah. What's underneath the consistency of the extreme behavior or the consistency of that behavior itself that really is no longer serving you because you keep having unpleasant experiences around it? Yeah, I, I often underestimate how checked out hum, human beings are at a general level. What is your take on that? It's different for you and I. We've both been unaware, right? We've, we've both been in that, in that time and space. We can look back. I'm curious to hear your opinion as to why you think the main reason is why we're all so fucking checked out. Pain's too big to deal with, and we don't know how. So whatever the pain or the trauma or the wound or the shame or the thing is, the fear, whatever it may be, it's, it feels too big. And we're so far removed from it that A, we don't know how to be with it and B, we can't access it without experiencing big pain. And the, the, the catch is that like an animal in the wild, like an antelope that escapes its prey, uh, sorry, escapes its attacker as it being its prey, like the cheetah, for example, it then will go to a quiet spot and shake and, and basically neurologically release and the adrenaline, the cortisol, whatever whatever it asks, and then gets up and prances off and does its thing. We don't do that. We compress, repress, and suppress. That keeps it in us, so we don't actually close the trauma loop. And in order to close that trauma loop, we have to ha we have to animate our body through breath, sound, and movement. We have to physically move that shit out of our system, and psychologically as well. I'm a big believer in that. I've I've seen it for the last 22 years. And there are many authors that we can both reference that, and and teachers and and, and scientists and researchers that also hold that that perspective too and so we have to move that shit out of our body that's important yeah i think i know i keep talking about men but just i think men struggle a little more here because they feel like if they go into those places they can't be that guy they can't be that top dog if they become weak they can't then you know be perceived as the alpha but to counteract that let's, let's logically pick apart how does it actually lead them to become even more polar polarizingly masculine and healthier and even a better, more alpha man by going into going into the nervous system, by healing that stuff. How does that actually benefit the man who wants to be that guy? It makes them more of a whole person. And so if you are that man and you start looking at yourself in that way, and I'm not an advocate for unnecessary, unnecessary or erratic emoting for the sake of emoting, for the sake of attention, or for the sake vulnerability for the sake of vulnerability. I'm not I'm not an advocate of that at all. There's a time and a place and there's a there's a, a level of intricacy that needs to take place within self to know when to be a particular kind of person. But to go back to what you're asking is really when when you are able to access more parts of yourself, you stop wearing masks and you stop compensating. So not <clears throat> I'm all for competition, but not everything becomes a competition. You don't have to be better than the next person for the sake of being better than the next person. You start to find more actual meaning in your life true substance but you, you you begin to live from a place of substance and meaning as opposed to living from a place of compensation and wearing masks which is very tiring which also carries over to having health issues too we don't want that yeah who wants that i don't want that yeah what was take me back to the first moment where you truly realized i'm wearing all these masks who the fuck am i I was at the front of my house, my grandparents' house. I was living there. They, were, they had just recently moved into a, a nursing home because I, I was looking after them for about nine or ten years. And I, just, I couldn't do it anymore. They needed real, real medical help. Mm -hmm. So I was living at, I was at the front of the house on the footpath. 
um, and about 15, 10, 15 minutes earlier, um, my partner at the time had dropped me off. I was doing a good Samaritan deed for an older couple and I left my phone in the car and she had an intuitive feeling to look through my phone and she saw an old email that alluded to me cheating mm -hmm. and she picked me up and she just lost her shit and we ended up driving home, we weren't far and I just said, give me my phone, give me my phone, you know, and um, we were basically just arguing at the front of the house and I ended up getting the phone from her. But it was in that moment <clears throat> and she became physically violent, mm -hmm. which I completely understand. I don't excuse that behavior, but I completely get it. She was so hurt, so hurt. Yeah. But in that moment, that's when I realized, shit, I'm wearing a lot of masks here. A lot of masks. Like a viscerally just boom, boom, hit me. What was the first thing you did after that? Well, after the intensity of that situation settled down, including, um, you know, and it took probably about two or three weeks for the intensity of that to settle down. Um, but I'd made the commitment before that um, to go really, really deep into all aspects of myself, no matter what, suicide, mental asylum, I don't care. I'm going all the way in to me. Yeah, I had a similar story. It wasn't cheating that brought it about. It was drug addiction, but... It was a similar perspective. I'm curious to, as to what you think why it was the case for both of us, where it was like, I don't give a fuck what it takes. I literally was in the, on the phone talking to mental asylums, yeah. uh, rehabs. I was like, I don't care what the fuck it, it takes, how crazy I, I, I may seem. I have to move. I have to take this journey. Some, just something in me, I don't know what it was, was like, whatever the fuck it takes, you're dealing with the shit. Yeah. Same thought process. I think it's accumulation. Firstly, you know, you mentioned Jung earlier. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer of the collective unconscious. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's something uh, in the air, if you like, that when we're ready and ripe for it, we can receive it, right? And it, and it permeates the collective. And so I think that's part of it. I think there are a number of different events and experiences and accumulation of interpretations of those multiple events and experiences that lead us to a place of enough is enough. And we will have what our version of enough and enough is enough looks like. And it generally looks like no matter what, I'm taking this path. And then there's a certainty that comes from being so uncertain or unconsciously uncertain. See, I appeared to be certain in my life, but I was so unconsciously uncertain because I was so deceitful. I was so much in my shadow that to me, that equates to uncertainty. And so I was so deep into uncertainty that I got slingshotted out of that and bang, I got really certain of this is the path I need to take, no matter fucking what. That combined with my extreme personality. I'm the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, I guess there's a recipe or a formula or a concoction that takes place. I think part of it is also a little unexplainable and maybe... Not, not to negate the, the fullness of the question, I think I've delved into a fair amount of detail, but also just our karma, like for lack of a better term, you know, our life's path, our life's journey, like this is what we're here, part of what we're here for. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I'm sure you may believe this, that certain trauma experts say you should never go bang into it all. I do agree with that. Yeah. But, but, this is where I'll, I'll be the devil's advocate. Everyone I know who's truly about it Same here. has done that. I know. So how do you reckon, how do you reckon with that? I know. So, you know, trauma is too much too soon, too fast. And ultimately, healing shouldn't take form in the same place because it, it can, can re-traumatize. There is a specific kind of constitution that can handle that. And so, in say, when dealing with general anxiety disorder, 
and in psychological analysis, there's something called flooding. And essentially, I'll give you an example. So and this, this works apparently like 51, 52% of the time, so more than average, is say you have a fear of heights. What I would do with you if I'm dealing your if I'm dealing with this anxiety that you have around heights, this fear of heights, I would put you somewhere really high, keep you safe, but get you to look down, like really flood your system with, oh, you've just been on heights and you've survived. Oh, my nervous system now, now gets it. Uh, maybe heights aren't that dangerous and they're not that bad. I'll give you an example. Yep. That's flooding. So flooding in certain circumstances can work. Generally for the vast populace, not. And even for those that it does help, where, where you know, again, I've flooded myself and I've been down that path, probably a more gentle approach, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, probably a more gentle approach would actually be better for my personality and nervous system. If I was to just look at, let me play the opposite game and move away from being so extreme in my life. Can you do that though? You right now? Yes. I'm, yes. not, I'm not there. Yeah. Uh, because because one of my highest values is mastering range. Okay. In all in all experiences, Why? including that. Because I think that makes us more robust, particularly as men. And I think it makes me more whole human. That doesn't mean that I'm going to go try every experience in the world just to be more robust. But it means that if I'm looking at a pattern that plays out and plays out, and sometimes it helps me or supports me in, in, in relation to my vision for self, sometimes it doesn't, let me just explore what doesn't. Just to just to be with that and have some level of mastery or adaptation over that as well, I think that makes us again more resilient, more robust. And I think I'm fairly certain about this. And I'd say many um, sociologists would agree that being resilient, an evolutionary biologist too, being resilient is a key trait of survival and thriving as a human being. Yeah, I feel like that could, the idea that I'm the belief that I'm resilient can fuck me up too. Because for me, it's like I've overcome not so much. I have in, in my own perspective, but everyone has overcome so much. For me, it's I've overcome so much so fucking fast. that to me, then when I'm faced with new trauma, new challenge, I'm like, man, let's go. You know, yeah. Lamborghini, 100 miles an hour. Yeah. I'm running through this shit easy. Yeah. And I kind of fuck myself up. My nervous system gets jacked up. Yeah. My stomach gets fucked up. Yeah. All, all this stuff happens. So I, I definitely am taking this in to try. But how, how okay, let's, let's go to me now. Let's, let's attack me. How do I slow down? How do I slow down when facing the chaos? Yeah. Like, let's say new trigger, new awareness of trauma, right? Yeah. You see, although I, ha- I haven't had a new awareness in a while, but I'm facing resurfacing stuff every now and then, yeah. right? If the trigger comes up, I see it coming. I'm like, let's go. Pedal to the metal. I'm feeling this all the way through. Yeah. What's a smarter way of doing that that would, in that moment, that would lead to more healing? Yeah, immediately slow down. You're self-aware enough that you know. So don't do the thing that you'd normally do. Like, and you're self-aware enough and smart enough that you could do that. You may not like it, but you could do it. How do you slow down? Is it, is it just through through breath, grounding yourself? Oh, yeah, great, yeah, great question. Yeah, so it's it's sometimes I literally stand up and I take a step back. Like I'll physically do that. So if I'm getting agitated and I'm feeling all the feelings, feeling all those things, I'll take a step back. That symbolizes me moving. Taking it to another level. Yeah. yeah, Moving away from the current paradigm that I'm in. Then I want to be slow because I don't want to be fast. I'm always fast. I'm going to slow my breath down. 
So yes, breath for me is a big, big part of it. It is a tool that I leverage. It saved my life, man. To go to drop in that fast, what are you doing? Box breathing? Are you breathing out more than you breathe in? What's the, are you just being aware of your breath? Both. Usually, it's a combination of things. So it can definitely be box breathing. Usually, it's not really breath retention. It's um, making the exhale longer than the inhale to actually get me in a more parasympathetic nervous system response. As box breathing does that as well. I just prefer that one. Or I may do some vooing, so I'll do some sounding as well which is vagal toning, again, all about regulating the body. Because if I can't regulate my nervous system, I'm going to make decisions from a dysregulated nervous system, which is usually vested in old childhood patterns because they're original patterns that are still entrenched neurologically in my body. So I want to move away from that. So that's why I literally take a step back. I breathe slowly. I may do some writing if I need to. I'm going to think about what would I normally do here, and I'm going to do the opposite. And literally go through that thought process. Now, you could do that. You are self- I I, I try and think that 100%. 100%. I don't do, do it well all the time, but... Neither do I, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, it, do, it does always come back to that little boy. And where I get worried about it is when it comes to polarity. Mm. That for me, that I know that the more my little boy runs the show, the more I fuck up my polarity, the more I don't attract the feminine that I think is worthy of my level of masculinity. It's a really big statement and a very accurate one from my perspective. How how do you reconcile with, with that? Or how, how did you, once you realized that, how did you start working yeah. with that? Really working with that little boy and letting him know that he doesn't have to be in the bedroom. He doesn't have to choose. He doesn't <laughs> yeah. have to choose. Not in the driver's seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't have to choose women or relationships. That he can relax and play and do the things that he wants to do. That that was then and this is now. That this woman is not mum and she doesn't need to be mum. And we've done a lot of healing around that. We don't have to keep attracting that type of relationship. But we don't even have to keep attracting dad in our feminine, in our female partners either, right? Or we don't have to keep attracting drama and trauma and familiarity and really nurturing him or actually working with him, right? Spending time meditating with him, doing empty chair processes, which is parts therapy or gestalt therapy, right? Or gestalt style of therapy. Um, but really working with him, giving him a voice, giving that part of your psychology, your psyche a voice, asking him what he needs. Yeah. Yeah, again, I'm at that point in, in frustration where, I'm, I know I'm young, I'm 24, but I do feel like since I'm aware and I have this, this potential, I get very hard on myself when it comes down to like, man, why, why are you coming back? It's that like automatic shame of like that little boy being like, I thought we were so past this, you know, like, well, for me, it's that, you know, I recently lost my mom, uh, lost my girlfriend of three years, not through this, just didn't work out. Yeah. That little boy in me is like fucking going crazy, like searching for all kinds of, of uh, secure attachments wherever it goes. No matter, I look at something and I just start acting up. So for me, it's just like kind of going back to square one in this more aware mind is, is, is challenging. It's something that I have to, to reckon with. You've got to put effort into it. This is this is something that is work for you. That's all it is. Like it's something that that happens to be work for you. Maybe for others it's not, but other areas of their life is really far more challenged where yours isn't. Yeah. Because maybe it comes naturally to you, or maybe because you put a lot of effort into it, or maybe a combination of both. What was your kryptonite in the healing process? Uh, n- not going back to what was very easy, which was prostitution, sex, food. You know, all those things. Like not going back to when it got really tough, not leaning into the old coping strategies. Do you still notice some of those thoughts coming back now? 100%. Absolutely. I still emotionally eat. Yeah. If I'm overwhelmed or really compressed, and my tolerance for that has increased over the years, of course, um, I will look to emotionally eat. Yeah. What does it feel like in that moment after you've emotionally eaten? There's some, sometimes there's some shame. There's some, some guilt. 
and um, I have to work through that. And it's another opportunity to work through that. But yeah, sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's not there. And it's reminding myself of, and it's it's walking a very, uh, a very interesting line of um, reminding myself of who I am without compromising myself, without excusing myself either. Because I don't want to make excuses for myself. So oh, it's okay, it's okay. Because then I become lazy and complacent. Yeah, yeah. That's I where that. I get problem. I get not angry, but frustrated with the self help world, where it's it's about all about self love. Do you know what that really means when people when people say that? Because for me, it's like I know the ego fucking loves justification. All it wants to do is justify bad behavior. You know, oh, you're just a human being. You know, nobody's perfect. It's this constant loop of justification. How can we beat that that kind loop with self-love without being too hard, right? Because that loop in itself can be, you know, deviously kind of being easy on yourself when that can actually come at a huge cost. So can you kill that with kindness or do you have to become more disciplinarian in that moment? I don't think it's one or the other. Kind discipline. Yeah. I think, yeah, like, you know, hard love or um, firm compassion. You know, I think I think it's both. And, and and as you become more aware of who you are, you oscillate between knowing when to use what approach with self or when to combine the approaches. But again, all that comes from, I'm just going to loop back for a second, the more deeply we reflect on who we are when we allocate time in our day to think about who we are to feel into who we are how we showed up how we behaved how did that relationship go how did that conversation go we get to know ourselves more and when we know ourselves more we have access to greater tools and the questions that we ask the curiosity of oh when to use this or when to use that we just fucking know yeah and also one more thing on that combine that with courage so you have to have the courage to apply and fail yeah. Or perceived to fail. Yeah. What does knowing yourself mean to you? Because I think when people say and I hear, I know myself. So you know your yourself right now without awareness. You know like a very fucking small part of yourself. So do you, what does I know myself, and you're really about it, what does that truly mean? It means I don't know myself and I want to explore it. Great answer. Yeah. Uh, it means curiosity. It means I want to delve into the mystery of what I don't know. Yeah. That to me... Because I think there's an infinity, there's an in, there's an infinite landscape of knowing self per se or self awareness that we're never going to fulfil, and that's okay. But and it's not about knowing as much of myself as possible. It's about really entering the void and the unknown and the uncertainty. Because the certain I want to go where where's inconvenient. Because certainty is convenient. It's very yeah. it's it's just convenient. It's easy. I don't want to, I don't want all my life to be easy. I want some of my life to be easy. Fuck yeah. I want some of my life to be convenient. Absolutely. Do I want to walk into my garage and jump into a cold plunge, and which is can be challenging, of course, or have my gym there? It's convenient. Yes, I want it. Am I working hard at the gym? Yes, I'm working hard. But I also want to enter the unknown spaces of reality, of my own reality, and the mystery, the void. I want to go there. That, to me, is, is really the pursuit of self-awareness. How, it's a broad, complicated question, but how does one enter the void? Yeah, I, I guess I, I tell you how I entered it. Um, so it was a combination of being, um, being in rock bottom, having my face and skull and testicles dragged across rock bottom, and then all of a sudden rock bottom being a very very tall cliff uh, with a very cloudy, dark, stormy sky and a raging ocean underneath me that I could sort of see but I couldn't see. Hero's journey. Hmm. Yeah. And I didn't know if there were jagged rocks there if I was to jump or sharks or 
I'd drown or whatever. I thought I'm just going to jump. Yeah. What I hear, I try, I try and pick up on little things that make someone exceptional. What I pick up right now is you have this excitement about entering the unknown that I haven't seen. It's like playful excitement of like, I want to fucking see this shit for myself. I want to go into this dark tunnel and explore it no matter what. And I think it's something everyone can take and apply to their life. Mm. Yeah, thanks, man. It's something that I've taken a very long time to cultivate. Um, and yeah, there is deep curiosity there. There's What's the shadow curiosity. of it? The shadow of it is, for me, and potentially for most, is that there's a disassociation that takes place. And that there's enough is never enough. And I'm never happy and I have to keep searching and searching and searching. I have to keep going into the unknown because the known that I have isn't enough for me. The grass is always greener on the side that I can't see. Yeah. That's tough for me. Yeah. I'm the same way. But how, how have you worked on that now? Is there a point in your day where you're like, all adventure, all dragons, go back to your lair. I'm just putting my feet up and chilling. Like, what does that actually look like day to day for you working on that side, being like, I'm okay right now. I'm okay in the known. I'm okay in the, in the comfort of whatever it is. Gratitude. Okay. Gratitude, the, the, the very active, uh, engaged practice of gratitude where we can actually feel, feel, kinesthetically feel what we are grateful for and appreciative of releases serotonin. And serotonin is a grounding, uh, substance i would say it brings us in the present moment and that gratitude allows me to be more in the known and be appreciative of where i'm at and so i don't have this need this excessive need or the shadow need to keep looking elsewhere yeah why do we find it so hard because gratitude unfortunately is forced for many, many people yeah. or for me especially after I, ha I have to sit down and force myself to like think those thoughts to a point where they automatically come right that's my thing is like i think Thank you for my mom, da, 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 and then eventually they start popping in. Yeah. I'm like, oh, let's go. Yeah. Now, now we're in the yeah. flow. But why is it so forced? Mm. Ooh, to, for me to answer that question, I would expand out a little bit and I would look at macro socioeconomics and I'd look at culture at large. Okay. And in the Western world, I would say that we live in a world, and this obviously influences our interoception of self and our intrapersonal connection to self. We live in a culture that is never really satisfied and wants quick fix, quick fix, quick fix. Mm -hmm. I think that impacts our ability to just be grateful for what we have. We're yep. also flooded via media, um, via government, via corporation with certain messages that are essentially telling us we're not good enough, we don't have enough, we need more, and if you don't have more, you're a piece of shit and you're worthless. So, Because <laughs> that perpetuates... Uh, consumerism, right? It, it perpetuates, uh, you know, economic certain economic structures. It also reinforces, um, you know, or I should say, planned obsolescence. Also reinforces this need to buy more, and in order to buy more, you have to do more. So we never get a minute to rest and be in stillness and silence and being gratitude for what we have because we're always trying to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah, it's a tough thing to realize, but we all have to realize it. That they, I hate using that word, but I don't know how, what else to use. That those holding up this power structure don't want us healed and grateful. They just don't. Yeah, it's not in their best interest. And it's not, to me, it's not a conspiracy theory when I hear that, man. Yeah. It's not conspiratorial. It's part of a system and a structure that has probably run away for its, from itself for a little bit. And if I put myself in, not my conscious self or the self that I am now, but as, as just as a human being wearing many hats or being in, in walking in many different shoes... 
I can see how, you know, a corrupt politician or, or, or a business person that is, you know, has created a particular lifestyle for themselves and is addicted to their comforts, it would be very, very difficult to change that. Yeah. You know what? It's a good way of thinking. I think we can get very wrapped up in correctly, you know, fuck the government, fuck big pharma, fuck sure. all this stuff, for sure. For me, where I try and make it useful for me and those around me is how does this start at the individual level? Yeah. You know, and really picking that apart of like what individually in us creates this system. Yeah, and how we contribute to it. Yeah. Yeah. And what we really want from life as well. And look, there's, there's, I think there's a, there's potentially a naivety that is associated with, I have the power to change a culture of billions of people. And I feel also at the same time, there's a truth to that as well. Because there is a domino effect of that. And then the circle of influence, the concentric circle of influence, that you carry within your people, within your social structures, and then how they then impact others. And all of a sudden, the messaging is changing. The people are speaking a different language, so to speak. I think that's all very possible, but again, we're so caught up in our world that we're just on rinse and repeat and recycle, man. And I find myself sometimes that way as well with my day and my calendar and... Um, this year is better because I'm creating more space for myself to mainly be with my, my family, but to also be with myself. But, you know, the last few years, man, I mean, the last 18 years, really, it's just been so go, go, go. Why do you think that's important, though, to some degree, especially for men to kind of test their, well, their limits? Yeah, because it's, it's helped me, honestly, it's helped me create the external success that I've created. And I do value the external success, not necessarily more than I value my family, but I value what it can give me and the experiences it allows me to have. Um, but it also helps me understand myself better yeah. and the challenges that I face along the way, along that journey, the valuing the process just as much as I value the outcome or the potential outcome and the lessons learned from that, like fail forward, fail fast, fail frequently and really embracing failure, not seeing it as something that's derogatory towards self or negative, but rather something that is actually very useful in building character. That's that's really how I see it in terms of how it can impact men healthily. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think that ability to be with failure and not let it kill you, I, I almost think about it in a spiritual way, which sounds crazy. But to me, I look back at all my failures and I'm like, man, all those fucked up moments had to happen for me to get here. There's some intelligence to me influencing my failures kind of leads me to be like just, just surrendering to whatever outcome comes because as of where I am right now it has all gotten me here whatever happened ha did happen the way it did so it's kind of having that gratitude of being like man thank god I fucking failed there for a duality of I, I gained resilience and it actually got me to where I can be and be right now but on a nervous system level let's go there when we're with that moment of failure and our brain goes back to childhood patterns right for me I don't know if you had a similar experience my, my dad uh, good, good guy, nice guy, amazing, amazing father in many ways. But I picked up basically conditional love, which was I'm only worthy of love if I am productive, right? Many wounds all, all of us have. When you actually, when I, when I had fear of failure, it was actually a tr uh, triggered mo uh, past coming right now in the moment where the little kid was like, "Fuck! If I fail right now, my dad's not gonna love me." Which I feel like is 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 that for a lot of us 
So the nervous system level, what do you recommend when we're facing that moment of like, fuck, I could fail, or I am failing, and a little boy is just like, man, you're not worthy, you're not wor- you're not producing good stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you been there? Slash, what do you have you done or do to escape that? I have been there many many times, um, and rather than escaping it, I, I want to be with it and allow that process to take place, and so. One of the things that I want to get very proficient at is just general nervous system regulation. And I want to also become really astute and aware of what's happening when I am becoming dysregulated in my nervous system, where, you know, there's dumps of adrenaline and cortisol and stress hormone, and I'm just not feeling connected and I'm flustered. And what is that? Am I getting hot in the cheeks? Is my tummy getting like butterflies? Is my heart racing? Am I getting agitated? Am I am I thinking fast? Am I becoming short and sharp with others? I want to notice the signs, right? The symbols that are that are leading me to understand this version of myself. Then when I notice it, I go, oh, okay, now I'm moving towards a state that I don't necessarily want to be in. It's not desirable. Um, what do I do next? And so this is where if you have general tools for regulation, breath, sound, movement, other practices, mindfulness practices, like for example, I may pause, take a step back, slow my breath down, choose five objects in the space, in the room, then assign five characteristics to them. So I'm grounding in the present moment. And so I just want to regulate my nervous system because real true healing can't actually take place if the nervous system's not regulated. Yeah. Even in Even in times of you know, receiving a spiritual afflatus or a revelation or something. In that moment, there's a regulation in the nervous system that allows that to happen. So from a physiological perspective, it's very important we just learn to regulate our nervous system. And then the deeper psycho-emotional, psycho-spiritual assessment can take place. Yeah, it's, I believe that ego, for my ego, ego goes straight to, you're smart enough to think your way out of this, right? You can handle this, you can, you can be so smart in managing your thoughts in this nervous system charge that... Yeah. It ain't no thing. And then, you know, two hours later, my stomach's fucked up. I'm, like, dead. My nervous system is, is, is crashed. Yeah. My adrenals are, are crashed. Yeah. It's so funny that, that our minds do that and we all get caught in that trap so easily all, all the time. Yeah, and I think what's also very useful for me is asking my body what it needs in that moment. Or my little boy as well, right? Like, the part of me that's really you actually like, activated. Like, say, like, body, what, what yeah, do you need? 100%. Like, so first I'll, what does it tell you? Yeah, well, it depends, right? So first I'll locate it where it is. In my body, so I can, and then I'll put a hand to it, ideally skin to skin, because gentle nurturing touch on the nurturance canal uh, signifies um, or sends signals to the body that, to the brain, areas of the brain that we're safe, so parasympathetic can engage, right? And then I want to just start to understand this part, give it texture, give it shape, give it color, give it substance, give it movement, make it tangible, right? And then I want to ask, okay, what do you need right now? It may say, go for a run. It may say, jump up and down. It may say, fucking scream into a pillow if I'm angry. It may say, go go outside and hit the boxing bag. Whatever. I'm going to listen to that part of me. And ideally, the more I listen to it, the more tuned I become, the more I'm just releasing that thing. And that's usually all that's needed. We don't need this big fucking psychodrama playing out in our head around stories. It's literally a physical release. We're done with it. Just like the antelope. That's it. It can be as simple as that. Yeah. There's this, again, going back to the ego, there's egoistic shame or, or weird yep. thought being like stopping you from expressing your feeling. It's so strange. Like there's some thought in you that says, for men, for me, it's like you're a bitch if you sit down and cry, if you go and beat up a bag, like you should be stronger than your emotions. You should be able to think. You know, those people, I, I see these, you know, these experts, these self-help experts, like these 
blue check millions of followers, people going like, your mind should be stronger than your feelings. It's like, yeah, to some degree, but yeah, you know, it's, you, it's, it's sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. but you know, you still have to give yourself room to feel if it's overpowering your mind. Yeah. I, I hear you, man. I have frustrations and I have personal judgments as well. I can't own that with, with certain influencers, coaches, etc., that have massive followings that really, they're just good marketers. And I'm all for mindset, man. M mindset is not everything. Just like feeling is not everything. We are holistic, multi-layered beings. Yep. And that that's, I think, a big message that we that so many people miss. And, you know, if people need really help with their mindset and their discipline, then maybe seeing certain people is going to be really helpful. But when those people are advocating for that's all there is, I find that to be very problematic. Yeah. I have to do a, a 180 right now because we're, we're, we're finishing. I want yeah. to end, end on one topic. Yeah. Uh, so you, you're an expert in insects to, to you know, to a large degree in, in, my, in, in my eyes. Um, so what I'm curious about is how our relationship to sexuality metaphorically represents our relationship to the world. How, how do you feel about that? And what, how does our relationship to sexuality actually come up in our relationship to Mother Earth or our experience? Yeah. So I'll probably get a little poetic as I, as I go through this as well. But, but, you know, our creativity... You know, if we if we are repressed in our sexuality, and I have been repressed and suppressing my sexuality f for many years through my life, right? And even now, like I have elements or old elements of self where I carry a fear of intimacy, mm -hmm. you know, and 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 I might I may hide certain aspects of myself with my partner, with my wife, right? And that's something that I'm working on and I'm aware of, and she helps me. We help each other. Like I help her through whatever her things are, and she helps me through my thing too, right? And, and so I don't claim to be this completely free sexual being, um, more than most probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, but n I know there's more space for me to grow into that area where we teach what we need to learn the most. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, our connection to our sexuality and the freedom of expression of that allows us to connect to our creative expression in the world, our purpose, our clarity of what we want to be in the world and how we want to see, how we want to see other than how we want others to see us, us. Our confidence, our authenticity. I don't just use that as a buzz term. I mean, like being truthfully ourselves, removing the fucking masks. Yeah. So the more I have come into touch with the depths of my sexuality, the more authentically me I can just be and give less fucks about it. Yeah, that makes sense because you're at your most vulnerable in that moment. Big time. So if you're fully like, I, I man, I feel comfortable in this experience. I know what I'm doing. I feel grounded. That has to have massive implications for your, your living experience. Big time, yeah. big time, and then the, the the continuous expression of that new way of being that is more liberated actually builds our character, builds our personality, so to speak, builds our expression in the world and who we attract and what we say yes to and what we say no to and how we give and receive love, how we fuck, how we do everything because sex is that expression, it's that creative expression of being, it's our personality, it's not just the physical act of penetration or receiving penetration, it's everything like sex is literally fucking everything yeah 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 why i say it is because you know i had certain experiences as a kid that led to sexual shame in my, my life where there's this kind of um resistance not to having sex but of like a resistance to being fully like comfortable and and, and very immersed in the experience and feeling like super um sexually you know masculine like uh which the core of me does but the wounded kid can kind of fuck me up in that in that department. So why I worry is yeah, it affects that department a little bit. But um, what worries me more is how it pertains to the world. Like how is me showing up in this way in this most intimate setting affecting my 
showing up in the world, and yeah. I see it. I see the reflection of it, which is scary. But I, I think, not to sound corny, but our ability to accept and see the scary is is what we need to to make change. Well, I, I agree. I don't think it's corny at all. And how it affects us also in the world is that we may hold back, we may take less risk, we may be less of ourselves, we may not put ourselves out there, we may not reach out to that person that we want to collaborate with because we lack confidence in ourselves. Yep. And therefore that comp that lack of confidence really runs parallel and leaks into all other areas of our lives. And so when we're very solid in our sexuality, and, and ultimately what that means is that we're not in shame of who we are. I mean, there's still me as a, as a man. And again, like I don't have a problem owning this or admitting this or even speaking to it because I'm confident in who I am. There are still elements of me, again, from my little boy that comes up, that part of my psychology that's still active in my life and in my mind and in my being that carries body shame, sexual shame from all the experiences that I've had when I was younger, when I was older, all of that. And so there's still layers of that that I'm working through. But have I evolved immensely from where I was? hundred percent big time and there's there's growth there there's still room to grow and I'm okay with it. I don't like to position myself as oh I know it all and I've mastered this I have mastery over certain things but mastery doesn't mean mastered yeah I think that's the end on this note but the biggest takeaway I can take from this I hope listeners take too is that I'm 24 I'm, I'm young in this in this game this is a, a mentor of mine and, and a more established person in it who is reflecting the same uh, quality of I'm still doing the work. I'm still struggling a bit, and it's fucking constant. To all you listeners who are struggling a bit or aren't where you want to, where you want to be, just hear that. Hear that where you are right now is okay. You're gonna keep struggling a bit, and you always will. And it's all beautiful. It's okay. You know, just just be with it. Have patience. It'll it'll turn around, and it'll be okay. Stephanos, where can they find you if they're curious? Which they should go and find you. Where can they go? Appreciate you, man. Uh, my website, stephanosafanos.com or social media at stephanosafanos. Great. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, bro. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Look at that. Wow, man, that went fast. <laughs>